chapter 23, in Acts chapter 23, the book of Acts is the, in the New Testament, fifth book of the New Testament, and so um, you know where uh, to locate it at. Acts 23, this morning we are going to look at verses 12 through 35 of Acts 23. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. Acts 23, 12 through 35. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There are more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul told one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. And so he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand, and going aside, asked him privately, What it is that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than forty of their men are laying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea as the third hour of the night, or at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias to his excellency, the governor. Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him. Having learned that he was a Roman citizen and desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council, and I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving the death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before, to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with them. And when they had come to Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor. They presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's 
Praetorium. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Father, I pray that as we look at your word this morning, and as we look at a doctrine that sometimes is difficult for us to understand and even more difficult many times for us to accept, God, I pray that your word would be made clear through me this morning, that we would understand it, that we would grasp it, and Father, in areas of our life where we need rebuke, we would hear that, in areas where we need grace, we would hear that. I pray that you would speak through your word this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Tell this message, man's deceit and God's protective providence. Have you ever gone through your day and thought, boy, today is my lucky day? Uh, you know what I mean when I say that. Everything seems to be going right in your day. Sometimes everything is going bad, and, and we kind of use that expression of all the rotten luck. Sometimes we say these things without really giving it a second thought. Does luck really have anything to do with it? Or here's one of my favorite expressions that, that adults and teens like to use. Uh, sometimes we say, whatever happens or whatever may be, may be. In that statement, we are saying, well, I can't change it. There's nothing I can do about it. Whatever takes place, takes place, and it's all up to fate. Often we don't realize that these statements and those like it are in direct opposition to biblical truth. The reason why is because they are at their core go, going against the providence of God. There is no such thing as luck, no matter how much we believe in it. And there is no such thing as pure chance either. In fact, some people think that the world came into existence through chance. But chance can't exist outside of itself. And it is simply a term and therefore it cannot bring anything into existence. Have you ever thought if you are having a bad day, it's because the Lord ordained those circumstances in your day for your benefit? It doesn't just happen because that would mean that if it just happened, it was out of God's control. If you are having a good day, the same truth applies. It doesn't just happen. When we say whatever happens will happen and so on, we're saying that the circumstances in our life are caused by impersonal fate and not by God. All through scripture we find teachings concerning the providence of God and this should bring comfort to us. It should bring us comfort because if the doctrine of providence is true, it means that God is not some sort of distant and personal passive force that is unconcerned with our daily lives, but rather he is a loving father that is concerned with our daily lives, that actively governs the daily events of our lives, typically behind the scenes to bring about the most good in our lives, all without robbing us of the duty of making responsible choices. This chapter describes for us intervening providence, the way God can use a Roman commander and an unknown relative to protect a life. In a world under the control of a sovereign God, things don't just happen. 
The culmination of this is found in verse 11. When God declares his own sovereign purpose over Paul by saying, just as he had testified in Jerusalem, he has to testify in Rome. That word must means necessity. If you remember, we looked at that a little bit last week. The sovereign purpose of God is that Paul will testify in Rome. And guess what? There's nothing that's going to stop that from happening. And in the rest of this chapter and in the coming chapters, we see that God is laying out how it is that he's going to bring about his plan. In this chapter, we will see man's deceit and God's protective providence. God has declared to Paul that he will be his witness in Rome. And there are over 40 Jews who have determined that Paul will not be a witness. And instead, they are not going to eat, nor are they going to drink, until they assassinate Paul. And so we have man's deceit at the beginning of this of these verses and then we have the providence of God and guess who is going to win I guarantee you it's not man first let's look at the deception the first thing we notice here in these verses is these men are deceiving themselves folks we have a tendency to to deceive ourselves we have a tendency to lean towards self-deception that's just how we are wired that whether it's good or bad we rarely see ourselves in the proper light that is exactly what we have in verses 12 through 15 remember last week we looked at how Paul had witnessed before the Sanhedrin and the Sadducees and the Pharisees got into this little fight and Paul had to be rescued however these guys they weren't going to stop they they're they're not going to give up they hated Paul they wanted Paul dead And so they were so wrapped up in their sin that they deceived themselves. They did not like the message that Paul gave. They were going to hear no more of this message. They They were not concerned with the will of God. They were concerned with the will of man. We must never confuse the will of God with the will of men. And so they laid out plans to actively go against God's will. And church, that's how sin is. It brings self deception. We, be, we begin to reason our sin in our own hearts and lives until we finally feel like we can justify that sin. Now pay attention because we notice that through this deception, there are at least two things revealed to us in this deception. First thing that we see revealed in the deception is this. Christians are not exempt from trials. Christians are not exempt from trials. These Jews are going after Paul. It is the Apostle Paul that they wanted dead. Paul is a follower of Christ. God had used Paul mightily to bring multitudes to saving knowledge of Jesus. You would think that Paul, a man who was used mightily by God, you would think that Paul would have it easy. However, this is far from the truth. In fact, Paul in his own mission in 2 Corinthians lays out just how easy things were for him. He speaks of his imprisonments. And he tells how he had been beaten so many times he lost count. His life had been in danger of death. Five times the Jews had given him 39 lashes. Three times he was beaten with rods. He was stoned. He was shipwrecked. He was in danger while on rivers. He was in danger of being robbed. He was in danger from his own countrymen. Danger from the Gentiles. Danger in the city. Danger in the wilderness. Danger on the sea. Danger among false brethren. He had sleepless nights. He had hardships. He had gone hungry and thirsty, not knowing if he would eat or or whether he was going to have a meal. He had been exposed to the cold. And to add to all this, he was under the daily pressure 
and concern for the churches that he had planted. That's what Paul says about himself. Sounds like a real easy life, doesn't it? Sounds like just a great time. Church, Christians are not exempt from trials. What makes us think that if Paul, who was used so greatly by God, had to go through so much that we should have it easy? Why are we so surprised when we go through a trial or when we go through a hardship? Why do we equate living for the Lord as being an easy life? And why are we so quick to turn our back on God when things get hard in our life? And God doesn't promise us an easy pass. We don't get to file an exemption on trials. In fact, the scripture often says that we are in the midst of a war in our daily walk with Christ. Sometimes we think, say things like, well, uh, God must be getting ready to do something big because Satan is waging war. That's just ridiculous. You know why? Because if you are actively serving the Lord, whether visible or invisible, the enemy, who is Satan, stands in opposition to you. He wants to take you out. So in other words, we should be living our lives in such a way that Satan is always on the attack. That, that it just goes along with being a Christian. That Satan is constantly looking for how he could tear us down we are not exempt these verses only go to prove it as these jews wanted paul dead they don't even want him to be breathing anymore but these verses also reveal something else to us in in this deception secondly they reveal to us that often those who oppose us the strongest are the religious the opposition that paul's facing is from the jews and not just any Jews either, but the Jewish leaders of the day. They are planning an assassination. And to show their zeal for the Lord in this assassination, they're going to fast to make it even more spiritual. They're going to have a spiritual assassination. I wonder what they told themselves to make this, this endeavor seem right. Perhaps they said something like this. Paul has so perverted our faith that he is saying these dogs, the Gentiles, can know God without becoming Jews. And he has to be silenced. They were going to kill Paul no matter what. And if should some of them die in the process, then so be it. That's the way they felt. They were, they were telling themselves that, that the end justified the means. And so the religious elite wanted Paul dead, and they were spitting their vitriol out on Paul. But check this out. Glance down with me at verse 19. You see what it says there? It's just kind of tucked away in there. But it, it talks about the tribune, right? And it says that he took Paul's nephew by the hand. Did you, did you see that? So this, this pagan that's not a believer in God takes Paul's nephew by the hand and he listens to what he said while the Jews who were supposed to be the religious people of the day plot to kill Paul what a contrast the, the, the religious who should be showing mercy are contrasted against the pagan who is showing mercy church often those who bring the strongest 
opposition. Often those people who, who come against us the strongest are those who are religious people. This pagan commander uses his troops to protect Paul and to make sure that he's going to receive a fair trial. When Paul's own people are ready to kill him, this pagan commander shows kindness and mercy. He also writes to the governor that Paul is innocent of breaking the Roman law. Paul's enemies wanted him dead because they didn't have an answer for what he was saying. They had no answer for Paul. And so the easiest thing for them to do was to kill him. Have you ever heard of um, an ad hominem attack? You know what that is? An ad hominem attack, if you're in kind of debating and, and that sort of thing, it's when you attack the person instead of the argument. And this happens a lot if you ever get in debates with people. Rather than attacking the argument that you're making, they begin to attack you. And you know why that happens? Usually it's because they can't refute what you say. And so they try to tear you down. That happens in the church. Christians attack other Christians. And it's often over a doctrine that they can't refute. And one that convicts them of their sin before God. And this is what's happening with Paul. He's being attacked because they can't refute what he is proclaiming. And so they might as well take him out. Church, don't be surprised when the people who oppose you the strongest come from within your church or the church in general, not from outside of it. Far too often than the church, people use God to simply cover up their works of the flesh. There are people that are pastors that teach the Bible, that do what we consider the work of the Lord because it makes them feel important and it elevates them in the eyes of fellow men. They serve for recognition and the praise that they get from it and they get those pats on the back and they love it. They, they follow Jesus as long as it gets them the accolades and they are the they are doing the work of the Lord so they say but they're really doing the work of themselves this was the problem of the Jews in Paul's day they gloried in self not in Christ and Paul preached the cross he preached that Jesus had to come and had to die and that he was the Messiah. We are sinners and deserving of the eternal wrath of God and Jesus the Savior had to die for our sins. If we are to receive him as a Savior, it means that we acknowledge our sinfulness and that we are deserving of God's wrath and that these Jews, they couldn't handle it. Because to receive Jesus as Savior means that you submit to him as Lord. It's not optional. If he is God eternal who comes as a man to die for our sins, then we owe him all of us, not just part of us. He is Lord. And so there's this deception that reveals to us as Christians, we are not exempt from trials. And we are often opposed, the strongest, by the religious. There's a second point I want us to see here. And that's this, that we need to trust in God's protective providence and his sovereign plan. I believe the hardest thing sometimes for us to do is to simply trust God. Let me take you back to verse 11 again. I know we didn't read it this morning, but let's think about this. Remember what I said that that word must, it means by necessity. So it was necessary for Paul to go to Rome. So what do you think is going to happen? Paul's going to go to Rome. How Paul gets there may not be how he wanted to get there, but nonetheless, he's going to Rome. How do we know that? 
How do we know that Paul is going to Rome? When, if, if, if we're reading this and we haven't read ahead, how do we know that Paul is going to go to Rome? Because God said so. Because the Lord said it was going to happen. So do you think when Paul's nephew tells him about the plot of the Jews to take his life, that he's thinking uh, to himself, oh, well, I probably shouldn't do anything about that because after all, the Lord said I'm going to Rome. Well, apparently not. Because he does do something. But do you think it caused him to not trust in God's protection? Or caused him to think that somehow he's now never going to get to Rome? Do we see Paul in panic going, oh, I'm never going to get to Rome. Oh, it's over. I'm going to die here. These guys got a plot. They're going to kill me. I'm not going to make it. The Lord said I would, but I'm not going to be able to make it to Rome. Absolutely not. There are some lessons for us in these verses that we just can't miss, church. First of all, that God has a sovereign plan. God has a sovereign plan. I don't know how we can come to any other conclusion as we read these verses. Verse 11 states that Paul must be a witness for the Lord in Rome. These Jews make this plot to kill him. And it just so happens that Paul's nephew, just so happens that Paul's nephew hears it. And he goes and tells Paul. And then Paul sends him to tell the commander. And the commander listens to what this kid says. We don't always see God orchestrating his plan through visible miracles. In fact, it is often through the everyday happening in our lives that he's bringing his plan about regardless of how the plan comes about God is in control now here's the thing we say well okay God has a sovereign plan but I want to know what it is right isn't that the way we are I mean that's the way I am God you have a plan but can you let me in on your plan so I can know what's going on ahead of time let me give you a couple things real quick. First, let me give you 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. What does it say the will of God is? Your sanctification. What is sanctification? Sanctification is the process of becoming more like Christ by walking by the Spirit. How do we do that? Well, we live by the fruit of the Spirit and not the works of the flesh. The scripture says, which is to say that we are to live a life that practices love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and not a life that practices sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. So God's sovereign plan is your sanctification. Your sanctification comes about by through Christ and practicing the fruit of the Spirit and not the works of the flesh. Secondly, His sovereign plan is to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. You say, well, where do you get that from? Well, way back when Christians actually wanted to hold to a theological standard, and I would argue that many should do so today, but often we don't. Anyway, that's a whole other sermon. They had things called catechisms. And in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, it asks this question, what is the chief end of man? And then it answers it. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Scripture makes it abundantly clear that we were created in order to bring glory to God. Just look at the scriptures that speak of God's glory. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Acts chapter 7, verse 2. Isaiah chapter 48, verse 11. 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 29. We could go on and on. Therefore, God's sovereign plan is that we would glorify Him and that we would enjoy Him forever. 
forever. That is, that we would know the enjoyment of God both now and forever. Why? Because God is entirely and altogether good now and forever. So God has a sovereign plan. And the plan is both our sanctification and that we would glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. But we also see in these verses, not only that God has a sovereign plan, but God's sovereign plan can't be thwarted. Now, I know we may not come right out and say it, but often we live as if somehow man is in control of God. Like somehow feeble little man can stop God's plan. Look, these more than 40 Jews who took an oath to murder Paul were some nasty people. In fact, the Greek in verse 14 would read something like this. If we, This is how it would read. We have cursed ourselves with a curse to taste no food until we have killed Paul. That's how it would read. We have cursed ourselves with a curse to taste no food until we have killed Paul. They knew if they were successful in murdering Paul, some of them would die in the process. They didn't care. I mean, these guys were like jihadists. They were willing to die for their cause. Now, something we would read, uh, sometimes we would read this and we, we would think, well, wow, surely these guys are going to be successful. I mean, they say there's more than 40 Jews and they're saying, hey, we're not even going to eat until we've killed Paul. But God's plan won't be thwarted. In fact, God sits and laughs at our plans. Listen to what his word says in Psalm 2. Some of my favorite verses. Verses 1 through 4. Why do nations rage? Read this in the backdrop, by the way, of, of people freaking out over bombing Syria, thinking the world's coming to an end. Listen to Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. There are times that God's plan may include suffering. There are times that God's plan may even be martyrdom. This would be the case for Paul later, but not now. Church, listen carefully. Whenever the wicked succeed in carrying out their plan, it is only because God has a higher plan. So when we turn on the news and we see the evil of the day and it appears to be running rampant, we don't despair. We're, we're not sitting there going, oh, I don't know what's going to happen. We know the only reason it is allowed to do so, the only reason evil is ever allowed to happen is because God has a higher plan and therefore he is permitting it to happen in the first place. Well, how do you know that, Pastor? Because Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 39. And now that for those who love God, all things work together for good. We like that one, 
Right? We love that verse. For those who are called according to his purpose. How do we know this? How do we know that all things work together for the good for those who are called according to his, his purpose? He answers it in verse 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What should we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is it at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding, interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? Shall distress? Shall persecution? Shall famine? Shall nakedness? Or danger? Or the sword? As it is written, for your sake. We are being killed all day long we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered no in all these things we are more than conquerors which in the greek that word is super we are super conquerors through him who loved us for i am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of god in christ jesus our lord so why don't we fret church why don't we sit there and wring our hands why don't we look at the events of the world thinking oh whatever's going to happen because god has ordained it to come to pass he's permitting it to happen all for his ultimate glory we can take comfort in the fact that there is absolutely nothing on the face of this earth no matter how evil it may be that will ever thwart the sovereign plan of God in your life nothing third or C if you're taking notes God's sovereign plan is carried out by his providence. Now, some people would say providence. That's a city in Rhode Island, not a Bible term. And in some respects, they would be correct. The word providence actually never appears in the Bible anywhere. However, the doctrine of providence is clearly seen throughout the Bible. If you want to read a book of the Bible that never mentions God, but makes his providence abundantly clear, you could read the book of Esther. All through it, we see God behind the scenes persevering his people from destruction. Some people deny the providence of God, and they say that um, though God created the world, he is no longer actively involved in his creation. This is what is known as deism. And some people say that God is active in his creation as far as the events of the world go, but he is not sovereign over evil in the world. Instead, evil is the result of the free will of man. However, Scripture clearly teaches that God is actively controlling or directing the events of the world and even uses evil people and acts 
to ultimately accomplish his sovereign will. And yet, even though he uses evil to accomplish his will, he's not the author of evil, nor is, his, nor is he responsible for evil. If God could not use evil or evil people to accomplish his plan, then that would mean that evil could ultimately thwart his plan. But no evil person or act can stop his plan. The Westminster Confession of Faith says this about providence. Providence means that God has not abandoned the world that he created, but rather works within that creation to manage all things according to the immutable counsel of his own will. J.I. Packer says this, Divine providence is the governance of God by which he, with wisdom and love, cares for and directs all things in the universe. The doctrine of divine providence asserts that God is in complete control of all things. He is sovereign over the universe as a whole, Psalm 103.19. The physical world, Matthew 5.44. The affairs of nations, Psalm 66.7. Human destiny, Galatians 1.15. Human success and failures, Luke 1.52. And the protection of his people, Psalm 4.8. The doctrine stands in direct opposition to the idea that the universe is governed by chance or fate. John Calvin in the Institutes of the Christian Religion says this, Providence means not that by which God idly observes from heaven what takes place on earth, but that by which, as keeper of the keys, he governs all events. Finally, theologian Wayne Gruden defines providence like this, God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that he keeps them existing and maintaining the properties with which he created them, cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do, and directs them to fulfill his purposes. Now, I don't have time to get into all the details when it comes to providence, but let's quickly break this down the best I can. First, God has created and he preserves and sustains all things. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 makes it very clear. It tells us that everything is upheld by the word of his power, speaking of Christ. This is a purposeful control over what is being upheld and what is, and what is it that's being upheld according to that verse? Everything. In Colossians chapter 1, we read that Christ holds all things together. So if Christ is the one who holds all things together, what would happen if he were to decide to let go? Well, there would be nothing. Everything that we know would be gone, including you and I. Why? Because he's holding all things together. So God did not just create and then leave it to chance or fate. God created the world and the laws of science and the laws of nature and actively maintains those laws that he created in our world, persevering and sustaining everything that we see in existence today. Second, God's providence means he cooperates with created things in every action directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. This is what Grudem says. This would mean that God causes things to happen, even things in nature. Rain, snow, wind, lightning. He causes them and directs them. He feeds the animals. Scripture makes that clear. Not only that, but he governs all things, even those things we might think are random events. So when we say, oh, I got lucky, luck had nothing to do with it. Finally, God also governs all human affairs. He's the one that has brought into existence all nations. He's the one that determines how far they can stretch out and how long, how long they will 
last, Acts 17, 26. He is the one who set up all the rulers on the face of this earth. They only rule because he's allowed them to rule in the first place. Daniel 4, 24 through 35, Psalm 22, 28. He governs all aspects of our lives, whether we want to admit it or not. In other words, you may plan your course, but it is God who directs your steps, including the number of days that you will even live on the face of this earth. Jeremiah 10, 23, Proverbs 16, 9, Proverbs 20, 24, Psalm 139, 16. Furthermore, even though he does not do evil, nor is he tainted by evil, nor is he responsible for evil, he is sovereign over evil. Genesis 5.20, Acts 2.23, Job, the whole book. 1 John 1.5. In other words, he can use evil men and evil events to carry out his sovereign plan. So we see in this book, uh, we see that in the book of Job. When the Chaldeans come, they steal Job's camel. Satan is trying to get Job to curse God. And God is vindicating Job for the unrighteous accusations of Satan. We can safely say that God ordained Job's camels to be stolen to vindicate Job. We also see this in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Did God ordain Jesus to go to the cross? You bet he did. There was prophecy about it before it ever happened. He ordained it to happen. And he used evil men to accomplish it. The cross is the greatest evil ever perpetrated against mankind. And yet God allowed it to happen. It was part of his plan. And we see it right here. God using these evil men to send Paul to Rome. Paul's going to Rome. How's it going to happen? God's using evil men to get him there. Thirdly, God's providence means there is a purpose. God directing all things. God governing all things. God upholding all things. It's all done to accomplish his purpose. And nothing can stop it. Daniel chapter 4 verse 35. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? It is all done according to his will. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance. Being predestined according to the purpose of him. Who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Listen I go through this. You say why are you talking about all this? My head hurts. I go through it to make it clear to us today. That God has a plan. And it's carried out by his providence. And it won't be stopped. And for me this is comfort. It makes it clear that the world I live in is not governed by random chance. R.C. Sproul says that if he believed this world was governed by random chance, he would quit the ministry and stay in bed the next day and do nothing. I wouldn't want to live in a world where everything happened by chance. I mean, you would live your life just hoping for good luck. Just hoping, oh, I sure hope today's my lucky day. Well, my family was, wasn't murdered today. Must be my lucky day. Well, I made it to work without being in a car wreck. Boy, I sure had a lucky day today. Or like some Christians who believe that God is not sovereign, sovereign over evil. They have no response for the evil in the world. So when a terrorist are beheading Christians or flying planes in the building or some crazy person is shooting up a school and killing kids, they're forced to come to the conclusion, well... God couldn't do anything about it. Because he's at the mercy of the free will of man. There's nothing he could have done. That's not the God I find in the Bible. 
If even that evil event is under the control of God's providence, that gives me comfort. Why does it give you comfort? Why can it give us comfort? Because I trust in his promise that somehow God can take that evil and he works it together for the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, as we already read. Otherwise, I'm just a victim. Otherwise, I can't do anything. There's nothing I can do about it. I take comfort in knowing when a terrorist blows up some building that wicked men cannot thwart God's plan. He has a sovereign plan, but rather in their evil, they are somehow inadvertently carrying out his sovereign plan in history. And they will face God's eternal judgment for their evil. So God has a sovereign plan. That plan's not going to be stopped by evil, men or events. God carries out his plan by his providence. The final thing I want to share with you this morning is this. Trusting in God's protective providence and his sovereign plan is not an excuse to do nothing. Here's what happens, church. When people are trying to understand providence, they say things like this. Well, If God is in control, then I might as well sit here and do nothing. Or they wrongly conclude that if the Bible teaches that there are people that are elect, then then they're going to be saved and we don't need to do anything about it because they will get saved. There are several things wrong with such a statement. One, it would be disobedient to not share the gospel with those that do not know Christ. Two, even though God's providence is real, we are still held responsible for sin. Three, God uses us as a means to his end. And four, the doctrine of God's providence says that God exercises his providence in such a way as to not destroy what we call human freedom or human volition. Rather, human choices and human actions are a part of God's providence. And God brings his will to pass by the means of the free decisions of moral agents, meaning you and I. The fact that our free decision fits within God's sovereign plan does not lessen the reality of that freedom. So the fallacy in a statement that says we don't have to share the gospel if there are elect people is this. God ordained that his elect would be saved through the preaching of the gospel to every nation, which means you and I need to be busy. Like Paul said, he endured all things for the sake of those who are chosen so that they may obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus. Paul had to suffer in order to preach to God's elect so that they would get saved. In our text this morning, God promised Paul that he would bear witness in Rome in verse 11. When Paul's nephew comes and tells him about the plot to kill, to be killed, Does Paul say, eh, don't worry about that. God promised me I'd go to Rome. I don't have anything to worry about. Do we read that? No. Paul sends him to the commander. And what's the commander do? He assembles horses and 470 armed soldiers to get Paul safely to Jerusalem. In conclusion, I know it's hard to understand the relationship between the providence of God and human freedom because man is truly free in the sense that he has the ability to make choices and to choose what he wants. I hear people say this all the time. God's sovereignty can never limit 
man's freedom. But that's not even a Christian statement. It's an atheistic statement. You know why? Because if God's sovereignty is limited by man's freedom, then God isn't sovereign. What kind of God do we have if we say that human choices kept God from acting? What kind of God is that? What kind of God say, do we have if we say, well, I did this and it kept God from doing this? If his freedom is limited by my freedom, then we are the ones who are sovereign and not God. We are free, but God is more free. And this means that our freedom never limits God's sovereignty. You know, I doubt any of us have ever had, uh, uh, have, have ever had men take an oath to not eat until they've assassinated us. At least I hope not for me. I don't know. Maybe some, maybe some of you are going to do that after this sermon. Like, I'm not going to eat until I take care of him. But, um, but, you know, I am sure some of us here this morning are in the middle of a difficult time. I'm certain, maybe even in the middle of an di extremely difficult time, you may even be going through a hard time because you're a Christian. And this is what I'm confident of. God wants you to see him in all of your circumstances. Because he is orchestrating events in your life to fulfill his plan. And to bring about the most good. And to bring glory to himself. You say, well, what about my relative that has cancer? Could God stop it? Yep. Did he allow it to happen? Yep. Why? Ultimately to bring the most good about in your life and to bring him glory. He said, well, pastor, that's easy to say. Yeah. It's hard to live. Yeah. Church, it's hard. To trust in the providence of God. It's not easy. That's why it's a hard doctrine to accept. It's hard to go into that room and look at the doctor in the face and have him say, your baby's gone. It's hard. And it's even harder to say, God, I trust in you. May you be glorified in me. Let me share with you something I read from a book by R.C. Sproul entitled, Does God Control Everything? There's an old simple story that teaches a profound lesson. For want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For want of the shoe, the horse was lost. For want of the horse, the rider was lost. For want of the rider, the message was lost. For want of the message, the battle was lost. For want of the battle, the kingdom was lost. What would have happened in the history of the world if Jacob had not given Joseph a colorful coat? 
No coat, no jealousy. No jealousy, no treacherous sale of Joseph to Midianite traders. No sale of Joseph to Midianite traders, no descent into Egypt. No descent into Egypt, no meeting with Potiphar. No meeting with Potiphar, no trouble with his wife. No trouble with his wife, no imprisonment. No imprisonment, no interpretation of the dreams of Pharaoh. No interpretation of the dreams of Pharaoh. No elevation to the role of prime minister. No elevation to the role of prime minister. No reconciliation with his brothers. No reconciliation with his brothers. No migration of the Jewish people into Egypt. No migration into Egypt, then there is no exodus out of Egypt. If there is no exodus out of Egypt, then there is no Moses. There is no law, there is no prophets, and there is no Christ. Do you think it was by accident that the plan of God caused that coat to come about. It wasn't by accident. Boy, but it's hard to be sitting in the midst of a jail cell thinking that you're going to rot and say, God means this all for good somehow. On his plan to bring about the Messiah. God was working out his plan even in the midst of pain. And church, I'm here to tell you this morning that in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your anguish, in the midst of your hurt, God is working out his plan. But whatever you do, don't fall into the air of passively submitting to the circumstances of your life as if it is just fate. God expects us to use every means that he has given to us as part of his providential care for us. So we pray and we struggle and we make decisions and we go through trials all the while trusting God's providence and his sovereign plan. Just like Paul did. I say to you, this morning, that in the midst of your pain and hurt and suffering, God is still in control. And you can trust in Him. Because if you know Him, somehow He's working it out for His good and His glory. So maybe this morning you'd say, Pastor, I'm in the midst of a difficult time. And maybe you just need some prayer. Maybe you want to come and, and pray this morning. Maybe you'd like me to pray with you. I'll be standing down front. I'd love to do that. Or maybe this morning you'd say, I've never given my life to Christ. I don't, I don't even understand half this, this Jesus came and paid the price for me. I don't, I don't get it. Maybe you'd like to talk about that. I'd love to have a conversation with you this morning here in just a moment. We're going to sing a song. And if some reason God has spoken to you, I challenge you to respond to how he's spoken. You can do that in your pew. You can do it by coming down. You can catch me after the service. But we'll give you an opportunity to respond um, during the service. Let's close with prayer this morning.